This talk was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of the North Church, as part of the 2023 Summer Training Project. For more information on Summer Training Project or Campus Outreach Minneapolis, visit cominneapolis.org. That was great. Uh, Harmon, I think your story in a lot of ways is going to uh, be related to what we're talking about tonight. And so um, tonight's our first theme talk, uh, first theme training. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, the point of these times um, is uh, to, to focus on, uh, to look to some really key aspects of what it means to be a Christian. Um, what are the major things, concepts that we want you to be walking away from this summer with, and how do they change us? Why, do, why does that matter so much? And uh, I have the privilege this morning to talk about God. Uh, yeah, that's what we're talking about, God. You know, usually we have a little bit more narrow of a, of a scope, but today we're talking about God. And obviously, we're not going to be able to talk about everything that relates to God, because we could spend the rest of eternity doing that, and indeed we shall, uh, talking about, thinking about, eyes set on God. But tonight, uh, I want to ask us, what do I think when I think about God? Uh, one of the most famous quotes, uh, probably, it's like the obligatory quote when you talk about God, is you got to bring up this A.W. Tozer quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You hear what he's saying there? I believe this to be very true. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Not so much what we do, not so much how we spend our time, not so much all these other different things we could define ourselves or understand about ourselves. What comes to mind, my understanding of who God is, that's the most important thing about me. Uh, and the reason, I, this is true of my own story. Uh, so when I became a Christian, uh, I had grown up in the church, uh, but I was actively walking away from the faith when I came to college. Thought all that stuff was a crock, not true. I, Fancied myself an intellectual and was like, you know, there's no way. It's a bunch of emotionalism and all that kind of stuff. Got to college. Man, Jesus met me there. The things I was living for, all that fell out, like many of uh, the stories I think in this room, and, and just realized pretty quickly that uh, I needed Jesus. I needed uh, someone to orient my life around. And God helped me when I first became a Christian immensely with this book called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Um, R.C. Sproul is, uh, has been a pastor that has incredibly helped me over the years. He passed a few years ago. And, um, uh, but he had this book, The Holiness of God, and, and it's all about God. And what was helpful for me as a new Christian is to realize that my new Christian life was all about God. Okay, Because I had grown up thinking Christianity was all about me, all about religion, all about the things I'm supposed to be doing, all about the way I'm supposed to be feeling, all these different stuff. But it's all about God, right? Uh, worldly religion is all about what you're supposed to do, right? That kind of mixture of psychology and morality that masquerades as, as religion, all right? No, true religion is knowing God. It's worship for who, uh, of God for who he is in a way that changes us. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is just questioning the answers to help us understand God, is what is the chief end of man? And it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? It's all about God. 
our understanding, our enjoyment of him. And so uh, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. That's my hope. Um, uh, who got to see the ocean today? Who got to go out on the beach? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, if you take some time, especially in the morning when it's quiet and it's not like, you know, a, a party and you're like playing spike ball and stuff, and you just go and you look out at the water, uh, universal experience is you go, wow, right? Like the ocean is enormous. And I don't have the number off the top of my head. I'm sure somebody can look it up after this. But even what we're seeing of the ocean is only a tiny portion of it, you know, just like dozens of miles, maybe before the curvature of the earth pulls the ocean out of your view. You're seeing a tiny portion of the ocean. And when you look at the ocean and you and you sit and think about it for a second, what does it do? How do you feel when that happens? You feel perspective, right? You feel maybe small. You feel maybe uh, that your problems, your life is maybe not as big or significant or it doesn't dominate your view quite as much. Or maybe you're up in the mountains, uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. Me and my wife um, hiked there, and there's Emerald Lake right at the base of all these mountains all, of around, all around you, and you can see the reflection of them in the water. And when you're sitting there, I was just like, for a while, we just didn't talk. We just sat there looking at it. Why? Because it just puts stuff in perspective. That's what I want tonight to do for you as well as we talk about God. What happens when we look about God and think about God is it, he just puts things in perspective. Understanding who he is, it puts things in perspective. And I think, uh, if I can touch in on Harmon's story, that's what changed for him. His life was very much about me and pride and all about me. And, what can I, and then you finally get a glimpse of God for who he is. And it puts everything else in perspective. That's what we want to do tonight. And so uh, we're going to read a verse, and, uh, and we're going to kind of uh, use this as a launching point. You know, this isn't going to be like we're just camping out in this verse and teasing out everything in here. But I just want to use this verse to show you something that we're going to be following a thread of for the rest of the night. So uh, here's the verse. Um, I'm just going to read it, and then I'm going to kind of retell the story, and hopefully we can understand it from there. So Moses said, please show me your glory conversation that Moses is having with God. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by it, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord descended in the cloud. This is a few verses later. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, 
and take us for your inheritance. So what I want to show you guys from this verse and moving on from there is that the glory of God's character, it's dangerous. You see that? It's dangerous, but it's, it's glorious and good. And it moves us to worship and transformation. All right, so that's where we're going to go. All right, if you get nothing else, remember that. So to start, did you guys notice that God's glory in this passage is dangerous? God is, has dangerous glory in this passage. What did he say? Moses asked him. So the context of this story, uh, Moses has been given the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai. Context for that? God has delivered his people out of, the, out of Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt, and God, by many miraculous signs and wonders, leads them out of Egypt and makes for himself a people. He says, you will be my treasured possession among all the nations. You will be my people. And how should you live? By these ten commandments that I'm going to give you. And he says, obey these and you will be with me. I want to dwell with you. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, he comes down the mountain, and the people of Israel, while he was gone, had made a golden calf. Like, is, there cannot be the most possible blunder in the whole world, right? Like, Moses is, is learning what it means to be the kingdom of Israel, and as he comes down, he finds they have turned to idol worship, and they have made a golden calf. And he takes the Ten Commandments, and he throws them on the ground and breaks them. He says, hey, these Ten Commandments that God just gave us to keep, already broken, tosses them on the ground and breaks them. But he comes back to God and he says, maybe, he actually tells the people, he says, maybe, maybe I can go and, and talk to God and find atonement of your sins for you. And so he comes back and he talks to God. And this conversation is a conversation Moses is having with God, basically saying, like, is there any way that you can continue to be our God, even though we immediately blew it? And what God says is, yes. Moses asks, can you show me your glory? How do I know you're going to be with my people? And what we see is a confirmation from God. This whole incident is, is God telling the people, yes, I will still be your God. Okay? But Moses is asking, he wants to know, can you, can you show me your glory? And this is what he gets him. He, he, he says, uh, yes, I will show you my glory. But, do you hear that but? He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Whoa. Right? Now, uh, I wonder if for some of us this is kind of startling. This whole, this whole idea of, like, not being able to see God and live. Right? Like, you're like, hey, I came on a summer project because I wanted to see God. I wanted to know him. I wanted to experience his presence. Well, guess what? If you come into the presence of God, you'll die. Like, that's what happens when you come into the presence of God, when sinners come into the presence of God. They die. Bergie talked about this morning. The whole, the whole story of the Bible is a story of God wanting to dwell with his people, but his people in sin separating themselves from God. And because of that, their sin drives a wedge between them and God. And you can trace that thread throughout all of Scripture. What's the major conflict in the Bible? If you were to watch the Bible as a movie, what's the conflict? God wants to dwell with his people, but how can God dwell with sinners? What must happen for a dangerously glorious God to dwell with his people? 
And what we see on display here is the holiness of God. Have you guys heard that phrase before? The holiness of God. Holiness is this word that means separation. It means set-apartness. Okay? So when we talk about God being holy, we mean he's different. He's other. He's set-apart. He's distanced. In what way is God set apart and distanced from us? Well, actually, just about in every single possible way, okay? I think we often tend to think of life like this. I think we, yep. We tend to think, okay, there's God and man, and there's this big gap between God and man and everything else, right? So it's like, you know, there's the thinking ones like us, you know, like we're, you know, uh, it's us and God, and then there's all that like mundane stuff down here. That's not the case. The, the picture the Bible describes is this. There's God, and then an infinite divide, and then man and everything else. That is key to understanding what it means to be a person, a human, in God's world. God, infinite divide, everything else. So when we say God is holy, we mean God is, is, is in a whole different category. He's in a whole different league. Does that make sense? The holiness of God is like a, a, a key to understanding the other parts of what we understand about who God is. When God displays who he is to Moses, he shows him his glory. And it's a dangerous glory because he's so holy. So God is not just wise. He's holy wise. Right. Not, not like W-H-O-L-L-Y. Right. Like he's not completely. He is completely wise. Um, but what I mean is he's on a different category of wise, right? Uh, when we say that God is good, he is, he is holy in his goodness. He's in a whole different category. Okay. Uh, all these different things. Let me pull this up. Is what God is like. And, and I, I've got here a list of words that we use to describe God that all capture a bit of the holiness of God. Often referred to as the attributes of God, if you've heard something like this. What are adjectives that we use to describe God that capture little bits of his holiness? And what I would like is for you to just kind of sit back and think and kind of listen, take it in, soak up all the things I'm about to say about God. There's a lot here. You're not going to get it all. I just want you to get the picture of how in a different category he is. God is self-existent. He has self-existence. God has no origin. He has always existed and always will. Self-sufficiency. Everything that God is and all that God is, he is in himself. All life is in and from him, derived from him. Eternity. God is absolute everlastingness or endlessness. Infinitude. God is limitless, without beginning or end. He is immutable. God never grows. He never changes. He never differs from himself. He is the way he always was and way he always will be. Goodness. The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of, and of quick sympathy. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes pleasure in the happiness of his people. Mercy. God's mercy is an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature 
which disposes God to be actively compassionate. We who earn banishment shall enjoy communion. We who deserve the pains of hell shall know the bliss of heaven. Grace. Grace is God's goodness directed toward human debt and demerit. It is by his grace that he imputes merit where none previously existed and declares no debt to be where one has been before. There is no one like God. The Bible is constantly saying that. There is none like God because he's in a wholly different category. But what happens when you and I come into the presence of he who is in his own category? We die. Why? Because he alone is holy. Isaiah talks about how our sin separates us from God, that there is a wedge that is driven between us and him. Every time in the Bible when people come into the presence of God, it is like, it, it is perilous for them. Isaiah has a vision of God and he comes into the throne room and angels are shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah seeing this doesn't go, wow, lucky me. Like, oh, I got brought into the throne room. Like, can you imagine that? This is great. He goes, woe is me for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Like, you see that? Like, when we draw into the presence of God, like, there's something about it that puts you in perspective. Because we fall so far short of the goodness of God. That's what it means in Romans 3.23. For a long time, I really struggled with this verse. Uh, because it says, for all have sinned. I get that right? Sin, bad things we do, right? And fall short of the glory of God. What's that all about? You know what I mean? Like God's going to get on us because we're not perfect. The whole point is that God is in an entirely different category. And because of our sin, we who were meant to be image bearers, who were meant to capture a bit and display to the world a bit of what God is like, we fall so far short of the goodness and the grace, and the unchangingness of God. Does that make sense? Like, okay, so there's some aspects of who God is that we're not called to be like, right? You aren't called to be um, omnipotent, right? God never asks you to be omnipotent. He's never asked you to be omniscient. He never asked you to be everywhere all at once, right? Those are things that you aren't called to be. But in his goodness, in his wisdom, in his patience, his kindness, in his justice, God has called us to be like him. And when people who fall so far short, focused on ourselves, eyes on ourselves, come into that presence, we can't see him and live. But, okay, it, it, because of all this, it's perilous to draw near to God, to see him. And uh, I, I love this passage from um, Chronicles of Narnia. So, um, you guys know the story of Chronicles of Narnia? The kids are in Narnia, and uh, there's the beavers. <laughs> you don't have to explain Narnia, right? Um, the, there's beavers. The story is weird when you try to tell it. Um, so there's beavers, and the kids are learning about Aslan for the first time, right? And uh, the beavers are telling them about him. And, uh, and so this is a quote from that. Aslan is a lion? Uh, no, sorry. The beavers say, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. She's troubled by this. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? 
I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mrs. Bieber. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see that? Like coming into the presence of God, like if you think God is safe, you're wrong. Does that make sense? Like he, the, at one point in Isaiah 40, he says the, the nations are like a drop in the bucket to him. Like, like uh, when, when people rebel against him in Psalm 2, he, he laughs in derision. He's like, you think you can rebel against me? Like, what is that to the self-sufficient, omnipotent, eternal God, right? He's not a man. Susan was troubled because she thought God was a man. She struggled because, oh, shoot, he's not actually a man? Of course he's not a man. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. What's our hope to draw near to a God that is wholly different in an entirely category, and we ought to drop dead the moment we come into his presence. What is our hope in a dangerously holy God? It's actually his holiness. Our hope to draw near to God in his holiness is his holiness. Get this, all right? Because this is like really key. If you think my sin separates me from a holy God, and therefore I can never get to God because he's too holy, there's an element of truth to that. But his holiness is actually what makes it possible to draw near to him. Remember that story I said, right? So God is constantly trying to dwell with his people, but people keep sinning and separating themselves from God. That's not the story. The Bible is not the story of a people constantly trying to get to God, but they just can't quite make it because he's too holy. No, it's God trying to dwell with his people. You see that? His perfect Love His incredible, perfect moral holiness puts him in a different category than you, but it is that holy, perfect love that convinces God to come to you. It's his perfect love that draws him to sinners. Does that make sense? Like he, so we can see this in the passage. He tells Moses, hey, you can't see me and live, all right? Like, you die the moment you saw me, but I still want you to see something. So I'm going to put you in a, lock, in a rock, I'm going to cover you, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I'm like. And God shows that his glory, man, is in his character, his tenderness. And so uh, I think we can see that in the verse. No, do we not have it up? You might have to jump too. No, uh, go back to Exodus. Yeah, there it is. Thanks. Uh, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, no, um, sorry. Can you go to the Exodus 34? Sorry, Harmon. Make you jump all around. The Lord descended the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. What does God say about who he is? That God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, probably Thousands of generations by the context. So while he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, three and four generations maintains steadfast love for thousands of generations. What hope do we have? It's, it's his holiness. I want to show you a picture of this. We talked about some of the attributes of what God is like, okay? Which is scary and should be. We're called to fear God. But this is the God who will not change. Remember immutable? This is the God who will not change his mind like you and go back on his promises to you. 
This is the God who chose you in his eternity, who chose you from before the foundations of the world and will hold you forevermore. This is the God who does not need you, completely self-sufficient. And because of that, he won't drop you the moment your production wanes, the moment you stop producing for him. This is the God wise enough to plan out a salvation from ages past and to bring the gospel to all the nations, including you. This is the God strong enough to quench your fears and uphold you with his righteous right hand, says Isaiah 41. This is the God good enough to turn even your worst sufferings into grace, your grace and your glory. Uh, All this good that's good for you is just because of who he is. Your salvation is not about you. It's about him. It's about who he is and his goodness. He is that good. He's in a whole different category. Does that make sense? But, okay, I've, you know, thrown out a lot of adjectives at you tonight, right? Um, I was listening to this interview the other day. I thought it was really helpful. Uh, It was these guys interviewing Obama's speechwriters, and they're asking them tips on um, giving a best man speech. So if uh, any of you might be best men sometime soon or or best women, I know that's not the phrase. Um, uh, Take some notes. Uh, uh, I thought this was really helpful. Uh, One of the big things that they said, uh, one of the big advices was they said, don't just use adjectives to describe the best or to describe the groom. Instead, tell a story that captures what you want to talk about about him. Does that make sense? Good advice. You want to tell a story, you know, paint a picture instead of just trying to use adjectives to describe it. Well, that's what God does with us. We see this in that Exodus passage. It says he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and he is maintaining steadfast love for thousands of generations. The Bible is not just a list of qualities about God. It's a story of God in action, the powerful one in action, the wise one in action. Does that make sense? God's justice and power. Do you want to understand how that works? Go read how he wiped out the world for their sin saving one solitary family on the ark. Do you want to see God's tenderness in action? How he redeemed a slave people out of their bondage in Egypt. The Bible is full of not just descriptions of God, but of stories about who he is. And we see that even in Jesus. Uh, I'm flipping around. Harmon's going to have to. Hebrews, can you jump to the Hebrews passage? Uh, What is Jesus like? Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I actually only needed the first sentence out of this, or like the first half of it. Yeah, just the first sentence, because I want to talk about him being the image of God. But the other one, just like, it's good. So you just got to throw it in with the other ones. Um, he is the image of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. How do we see the character of God in action? Jesus. Right? We talked about it last night. We see his tenderness with weak people. 
right? We see him touching people that nobody else would touch, lepers. We see him uh, uh, letting uh, a woman wash her feet, wash his feet with her tears. While everybody else is trying to, trying to get her out of there because it was not socially appropriate. He's like, no, like, let her come. We see Jesus do all kinds, we see his character in action. And I think we see God's glory continually on display in each of our lives. One of the best parts about Project is coming in here in each of our stories. D-group time on Wednesday is going to be, I'm guessing, a time to get to share with your room about like, hey, who am I? You know, you don't know me. I'm coming into this place. Like, I want to tell you a little bit about who I am. Include including that God's kindness and his, like, his glory, his character on display in your life. Each of our lives are testimonies of the glory and the goodness of God. And testimonies in a lot of ways, too, of the judgment of God, the righteousness of God, that he would not let us continue in our sin. But ultimately, the best display, glory on display, thank you, the best and most ultimate uh, display of God's glory is on the cross. The cross is this place where all the manifold wonders of God's attributes meet right there in one moment, in one place in real history. You see the mighty God condemning sin in the flesh. All of the anger and wrath of God poured out on sin. If that makes you uncomfortable, remember God's glory, it's a dangerous glory. But that, that anger and wrath, it's being poured out on Christ in my place. And you see the tenderness of God to come and take on human flesh, to love so deeply that he would climb on that cross for us. There's this uh, song uh, that I love singing at Christmas time. And here it is, Come and Stand Amazed. And we like, see the, 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 the bringing together of things that shouldn't go together in God. But because of his holiness, they do. See in Jesus, see the mighty, weak and tender. See the word who now is mute. See the sovereign without splendor. See the fullness destitute. I love that. That's Jesus. If anything shows you at all perspective for how far short of God I fall, it's the fact that God's own son had to be killed in my place. And if there's anything that shows me how much God wants to dwell with his people, it's God taking on human flesh and dying in the place of sinners. So how can we respond? All right. So what does that do in you when you see that glory? How does that perspective change in us? Well, it moves us to worship. Let's look at this song. Uh, how does this psalmist respond to the glory of God that they see? He says this, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. You see that? that there is none like God. In the wondrous works that he does, what does that do in him? It, it makes him, it, it unites his heart to fear your name. I love that picture. All of the broken, different, 
disconnected parts of who I am, unlike God, who's perfectly coherent in himself, all those different parts of me get united in fear of who God is. But not like I'm scared of him, but like that is the one. Like he is the one. And he says, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. A whole heart united in fear and thanks. That's what we're called to in worship. Uh, John Piper's got this book uh, called God is the Gospel, which is really great. Go read it sometime. Talks about how the whole point is God, which is fitting for tonight. So that's why I want to quote it. Um, This is what he says, and I love it. Uh, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. You see that? Like the whole point of all this is to direct our gaze so that we could look at God and see him for who he really is. Do you know what I think is going to be the most sweetest moment in heaven someday? Have you guys ever heard of this thing called the beatific vision? It's this idea that when we die, Revelations talks about how we're going to see God face to face. That we're going to be changed and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. How amazing is that? When we see God, it changes you. It moves your heart to worship him in that kind of way. So there's a, uh, there's a handful of uh, blind students in our ministry at SIUE, and uh, Katie really wanted to be on summer project, um, but couldn't uh, make it happen. And uh, Katie, uh, one of the blind students, uh, is really wrestling with God and, um, and whether God can be good and all these different things. And Katie was talking about her blindness in, uh, in the lunchroom, and she said, uh, isn't it amazing that the first thing I ever see is going to be the face of my Savior. Man. Like, because she, she gets it. She might not actually be able to see God, but she sees God. Right? Like, she gets it. Her heart has been moved in seeing God to worship Him. And that's what it's meant to do to us. But as, it, as where our hearts are moved to worship Him, that act of looking at Him and beholding Him, it changes us too. Okay? We, we walk away transformed from that. Uh, remember how we said Christ was the image of God, right? In the, in the exact imprint of his nature. What happens when we actually see God? So um, this Second Corinthians passage is actually drawing from the Exodus passage. When Moses walked off the mountain after seeing God, his face glowed, like literally glowed. It was meant to be like a, 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 like a symbol for the people that got like Moses, like, actually did it. He like actually got to see God and a confirmation that God really was going to be with his people. Um, but the, the picture is that like from then on, everybody's always seeing God through a veil, right? Nobody can actually get into the presence of God until Christ comes and he comes and he dies in our place and God no longer covers us with his hand. He covers us with the blood of his son and we can actually know him. And we, and this is what it says, uh, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
when we see God for who he is, who God is becomes beautiful, magnificent, and glorious to us, and we can't help but start to live that way. Right? Like, if you're just trying to be gooder, it's not going to work. You need to see the holy good one and, and love and delight, the, delight in those things and let that change you from the inside out. Does that make sense? What, and what happens when we see God in this kind of way? Well, we start to see the world in the way that God sees it. We start to trust him more in his word and his promises because he can never go back on them. We start to long for him more. And this motivates us. It moves us out of ourself. And then we start to despise all that is not like him because we no longer love these other things that can't come close to the goodness of God. And instead, we, we, we hold him up in our hearts. And that's what I want for us. Once again, I, like perspective. The holy good God that it ought to be dangerous to get into his presence has made it possible through his blood, through the blood of his son, so that we can actually come and know him. And someday it won't just be like partial presence or something. Like we will dwell with him, see him face to face, and it will forever ultimately change us. And we will spend the rest of our days worshiping him in his presence. How amazing is that? Until then, let's continue to look to him. Let's continue to cast our eyes on him and have that consistent perspective changed in us. Let me pray, and then we've got some discussion questions for you guys. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, God, it's amazing that we can even know you. God, there's no reason why we should, uh, but you have made yourself known to us. You have stooped down to people who ought not to and don't deserve to know you and to see you and to be in your presence. And God, you have uh, showered us with so much uh, that we don't deserve. And uh, God, thank you most of all for showing, confirming, putting your seal on your character uh, by uh, putting your money where your mouth is with Jesus, um, that he would die on that cross for us. And uh, God, I pray uh, that as any of this is uh, odd, like the dangerous glory of God, as that feels different or weird to people, uh, to us even, I, God, I just know it's because we don't see you as you really are, and we don't see uh, everything about you and all these different qualities that you are, and we don't see how far amazingly above us you really are. And so, God, I pray that, that we could have a glimpse of those things that you would move us from one degree of glory to another, from one degree of understanding and knowing you to another. And uh, so, God, we just we thank you for these things, and, and thank you for Christ who makes you known. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. So after all these theme trainings, um, we're going to have discussion questions, and uh, this is just a time uh, for you guys to sit and kind of, you can uh, journal quietly to yourself or uh, maybe in a bit, in a couple minutes, you can maybe turn to the person next to you after you write some things down for yourself uh, and start talking. Thank you for listening to this message from the 2023 Summer Training Project, hosted by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of the North Church. Please feel free to share this message with others, but don't charge, edit, or alter the content in any way without the written permission of Campus Outreach Minneapolis.